With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, everybody. I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh, my God! How could he do that? Donate what? what? Charles Darwin. All right. So today on Nerd Session, we're going to continue looking back to uh, NBA and NFL history because that's all we've been doing lately. There's no sports to talk about. And we're going to do a topic that I think is pretty interesting. We're going to be talking about the top 10 sixth men in NBA history. So, Logan, I know that you and I might have used different criteria for this. For me, that meant that they had to have play at least half. They had to have played at least half their career off the bench and feel like a true sixth man to me. So some of the guys that I didn't count were John Havlicek, who it's not really clear when he began to start. Some say it was in 66, others say it was in 69. Either way, it's over half his career. Or guys that transitioned to being a sixth man late, like a Bobby Jones, a Bill Walton, a Lamar Odom. Or some guys who barely played under half their games, but I don't think they would really be considered sixth men like a John Starks or a Jason Terry. So that was my criteria. I don't know if you want to add anything to what sort of you considered in your evaluation of who was valid, and then we can get into the to the number 10. I kind of, if they had a significant tenure as a sixth man, I considered them for my list. A, a memorable one, I would say. Yeah. Uh, without further ado, though, at number 10, a guy that you just mentioned, uh, at number 10, I have Jason Terry on my list, and it's really for his five-year run in Dallas, and the championship really cements him on my list, in my opinion, because he was a integral part of that championship team in 2011 that took down the heat. I mean, that team was built around the three ball, and Jason Terry fit that system perfectly. I felt he was such a solid contributor off the bench after that, really his time in Dallas, because as you mentioned, in Atlanta, he was a full-time starter, and after that, he really transitioned to a sixth man. He, uh, the 2008-2009 sixth man of the year, and as I mentioned, a championship uh, his numbers, he was, you know, consistently around 14 or 15 points a night off the bench and a at least a 35% shooter, sometimes even better up in the 40s uh, from deep. I felt Jason Terry's contributions and the fact that he won a championship as a sixth man puts him on my list. I know that the games, as you mentioned, he was more of a starter early on in transition, but I think Jason Terry deserves to be on my list. Yeah. I think that it's a very strong case. You look at what he did in Dallas. He's probably the second best player in that series for the Mavs, outscored LeBron in that series, and um, played some some pretty solid defense and was just a huge spark plug for them and really a massive contributor to a championship team. So that's a totally legitimate argument. My number 10 is Ricky Pierce. 
And I think Ricky Pierce is a guy that sort of gets lost a lot historically. He was really valuable to some really good Bucks teams in the 80s. Looking at his career just off the bench, he was one time an all-star off the bench, a two-time sixth man of the year with career averages coming off the bench of 14 points per game on 49.7% shooting. You get some of his notable years in 86-87, averaged 19.5 on 53% shooting for a 50-win team that pushed the Celtics to 7. 88-89, 17.6 points per game on 52% shooting for a 49-win team. 89-90, he's 23 a game on 51% shooting for a 44-win team. And then 90-91, he's 20.5 points per game on 48.5-40-91 splits between two playoff teams because he got traded midseason, Milwaukee and Seattle. So I think that those 80s Bucks teams are just, to me, um, under-discussed overall. I mean, Sidney Moncrief was one of the incredible guards of that era, a two-time defensive player of the year. And they were perennially winning 50-plus games. And Ricky Pierce, I think you could argue, after Terry Cummings, was maybe the third-best player on those teams. So he's a really valuable sixth man that didn't just put up numbers but contributed to winning but unfortunately doesn't have some of the uh, championship contributions that some of the other guys on this list have or some of the raw career scoring numbers off the bench. But I still think he's a deserving uh, recipient of the 10 spot for me. So who do you have at nine? So at nine, and he's a guy I had really, I had a really hard time gauging because most of the guys that are high on my list won a lot. And it was, winning is such a big factor, in my opinion, for six men. But he was such a talented six man his entire you know nearly his entire career at number nine I have Jamal Crawford and I, I again I didn't know well. that's interesting and Jamal was tough for me because honestly if I am building a franchise today Jamal Crawford is a guy I want coming off the bench he is immediate offense he is a complete bucket and I don't want to get sidetracked here but how was this guy not on a roster in his life it's crazy that in his last game to me, he drops 51 points and wasn't signed at all this this shortened season that we did have. Yeah, I mean, he's still really one of the better bucket getters in basketball. It's just there are so many other deficiencies. He gets tunnel vision so much. He's a complete liability on defense now. And he is not the, he's not the most efficient scorer either when he does have the ball in his hands and he needs the ball a lot. So I understand why at this age – He's not a guy that championship teams really want to get their hands on. But peak Jamal Crawford is a guy that can give you 20 a night, can be the fulcrum of your offense, essentially. Uh, A little bit reminiscent, never the playmaker, but in some ways like what Lou Williams is right now, a guy that could just come in and give you 20 a game. And I think that Lou is decently better, but as far as pure one-on-one scoring, Jay Crossover is right up there. He's a three-time sixth man. Uh, which is a designation he shares only with Lou Williams. In his career off the bench, 13.9 points per game on 41% from the field, 35% from three, and he's third all-time in bench scoring. And you look at the three six-man-of-the-year campaigns, 29-2010 season, he averages 18 a game on 45-38, 86 splits for the Hawks. 13-14, he's 18.6 on 42-36, 87 splits for the Clippers. 15-16, he's 14.2 on 40-34, 90 splits for the Clippers. Playoff numbers are a little bit shaky, 14-2-2 on a 39% from the field and 31% from three. I think that overall, his legacy is basically going to be an incredible handle, a jaw-dropping handle, a guy that could explode on any given night, but also took a lot of shots, missed a lot of shots, and was flawed in so many aspects of his game outside of just pure scoring that 
I couldn't really have him any higher on my list. I think people are going to remember Jamal Crawford as an absolute bucket, but I think they're going to remember his signature dribble move. I mean, you know, the and in his signature layup. I think that Jamal is – I'm not going to say transcendent because that's a, that's a big word, but I'm going to say he impacted a lot of – he was very creative with the basketball, and a lot of people yeah. that I know tried to imitate his game. He's one of the most iconic players on this list, without a doubt. And he was a great creative finisher at the rim. I mean, he was really built to score. It was just he didn't do a lot of the other stuff all that well. So let's move on to number eight. Who do you have there? At number eight, I have your number 10 spot. I have Ricky Pierce. Okay. And I have Ricky here more because I feel Ricky was more of a solid contributor on a team that had some decent playoff runs. And in his tenure in Milwaukee, the team didn't dip below 42 wins. The two-time six-man-of-the-year uh, winner, as you mentioned, I think it, it factors in here is why he's number eight on my list. I know Jamal won it more often, but I felt Ricky had more team success and was he meant more to his team than, say, Jamal did to the Clippers. Yeah, I think that that's fair, and I think that, again, winning is totally a factor in this, and it's a major factor for my number eight, which is Tony Kukoc who in his career as a sixth man, the numbers may not blow you away, basically 10-4-3 on 44% shooting, 34% from three. His three years as a sixth man in Chicago, a little better, 12.4, 4.1, and 3.7 on 46.5% from the field, 35% from three. And the 95-96 season is a big reason I have him here because, first of all, that's probably the greatest team ever, 72 wins and, of course, a championship. He was sixth man of the year that year, averaging 13, four, and three and a half on 49% shooting, 40% from three. In the finals, averaged 13, five, and three. Obviously, was a highly coveted talent by Jerry Krause, came over to the NBA a little bit later, and he was on really part of a great era of Yugoslav basketball where you have guys like Drazen Petrovic and Vlade Divac and all these guys, Dino Raja, who could really play. And I think you could argue that he had the most significant NBA contribution of any of them because he was on those Bulls teams and I think a clear fourth best player after Rodman just because of what Rodman did defensively but he had that playmaking ability at huge size he could really shoot the three and just a natural scorer uh, and a guy that was sort of built to play basketball so maybe he doesn't have the jaw-dropping numbers of some of these other guys but I think he was so relevant and is so relevant in basketball history that I had to have him here. I mean, it's amazing to me that Kukoc was the second-round pick and had that significant impact on the floor for so long in the NBA. Yeah, and well, Kraus, I mean, it was a huge point of contention, and I guess they probably, it's looking like they won't get into that in the last dance, but Kraus kept talking about how badly he wanted Kukoc to come over, and Scotty and Michael were pretty upset about it. So Jerry Kraus, you know, was really stirring the pot in Chicago long before he literally forced uh, the greatest dynasty in NBA history, except maybe the 60s Celtics to end. So I think maybe the dumbest decision in NBA history. Yeah. I don't feel like we need to speak on how incredibly stupid <laughs> that was. Let's uh, move on. Lastly, yeah, go ahead. On Tony Kukoc here. Um, I have him. He's actually, why am I going to say last thing? He's the next guy on my list. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Kukoc, it's, it's a nice segue. Kukoc is seven on my list. And I feel, the NBA championships matter. It's, it's why he's going to be higher on my list. But I also felt that Kukoc for me was a bit of a tweener. He was he won enough to get him above some of the guys lower on my list. But I have a guy like Lou Williams higher on my list just because 
I don't know. I watch Lou Will play, and I know his impact on the floor. Lou Will is so crafty with the ball. He's so good with the ball in his hands. He can. He's a playmaker. He can move the rock for you. He's just a great, in my opinion, a great basketball player. Um, and that's why I, I felt like Kukoc had to rely on his teammates a little more. I feel like I can take Lou Will in a vacuum, and he can dominate. I, Carson, do you know that you uh, share a nickname with Tony Kukoc? I share a nickname with Tony Kukoc? What is it? Um, apparently on his basketball reference page, uh, he was known as the Pink Panther for a short period of time. No way. And I believe the, uh, you're Croatian, probably... and the Croatian sensation. And I, you know, I am Croatian by blood. A lot of people call me the Croatian sensation. He also has five more various nicknames through here. Good. Good for Tony. So my number seven is Vinny the Microwave Johnson. And he is really a career six man, which is something that I liked for this list as I like to, you know, like Bill Wallen, a great six man, but only a six man for basically one year. So I sort of um, lean towards guys like Vinny, who were career six men, only started the majority of one season, had career averages of 12, three and three on 46% shooting uh, on the first Pistons titles team in 88, 89. He was 13.8 points per game that year, 14 points per game in the finals. But I think part of what makes him so memorable is, as his nickname suggests, he always got hot at the right times. Look at the 89 finals, game three. It's a tight game. The Pistons win 114-110, and he hit his first six shots of the fourth quarter. That's big-time stuff you don't get from a lot of six men historically. In the 1990 finals, game five, he scored 15 in the fourth to win 92-90 to close out the Blazers. He's the best player late in that game. And so I think moments like that, are where maybe look at the career as in totality and maybe the numbers aren't as impressive, but he does have the winning and he has the signature moments to where I think he's one of the defining six men of all time. And I think that he has to be um, this high for me. I have Vinny even higher. And I think, I think there's a strong case for having Vinny higher. Okay. So who do you have at number six? At six, as I just mentioned, I have Lou Will, and Lou Will to me was very much in the same mold of the Jamal Crawford, where I he didn't win enough to where I don't know where to, where to really put him on my list. But Lou Will's a great basketball player, as I just said. He's a three-time Six Man of the Year winner, and he's just an absolute bucket getter. He's a guy I want on my roster. Lou Will is a guy that off your bench, he's my point guard. He's the guy that you want off your bench. His Numbers have never really blown you away, but that's been because he's come off the bench. But he's so good in that role that I wouldn't want anybody else to be there. And this year, I think almost he had a stranglehold on the sixth man of the year for another win. I think he could have been a four-time winner. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that his nickname is just sixth man. He is, I think, one of the best to ever do it. I have him higher. He's the all-time leading bench scorer, and I think he's – I don't know, one of the three most offensively skilled six men ever. And so I think that when you consider that, I really didn't hold any issues of winning against Lou Will just because I think that it's, with him, it's really circumstance. Like, Jamal Crawford is a guy who really dominated the ball, who wasn't particularly efficient, and who I could kind of see how he could take a team down. Lou Will, I think, with his evolution as a playmaker, great as a pick-and-roll ball handler, and is a guy that can score with such ease on all three levels, gets to line really well, I just really, truly believe that he can impact winning. But my number six is a guy who was here largely because of winning. And I have Michael Cooper, who the raw numbers aren't crazy. Basically, nine, three, and four for his career with 1.2 steals per game, 47% from the field, 34% from three, 
was the 1986-87 Defensive Player of the Year, one of just five guards to ever do that, and I think the only player to ever do it coming off the bench. Five-time first-team all-defense, three-time second-team all-defense, and, of course, a five-time NBA champ. In the playoffs for his career, averaged 9.4, 3.4, and 4.2. In the 87 playoffs, averaged 13, 3, and 5 on 48.6% from three on four attempts a game, so legitimate volume there. I think if he was a guy that could set up teammates, uh, he could knock down an outside shot when they needed it, and just an absolute clamp capable of defending the, the other team's best perimeter scorer when Magic probably wasn't because Magic, you know, could be a liability defensively. Michael Cooper was one of the absolute best. And so that's why I think even averaging under 10 a game, I have to put him above some of these other guys because he had a huge impact on winning, in my opinion. Michael Cooper is five on my list for his knee-high socks um, and Good. only his knee-high socks. Good. Um, I, Cooper was such a defensive clamper. He was just a guy that you could send in at any given time to put on a guy who was getting buckets and shut him down. Obviously, um, some of his battles with Bird. And if you're tasked with guarding Larry Bird, you're probably pretty good at defense, I would estimate. Um, I tend to Cooper agree. also, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, a three-time all-defensive second-team choice. And, well, you mentioned his, um, his playmaking and his steals. Fifth all-time in Lakers history and in assists and steals, you know, despite his you know, not having as many minutes as other uh, significant Lakers, as many as there are in history. And a five-time champ. I mean, Michael Cooper, I feel, couldn't be lower than five on my list. He impacted the game in such a way and was such an impactful player for the Lakers. I felt he had to be really high up here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, winning is huge with all of this. You have guys that will put up massive numbers off the bench, and it really doesn't mean anything. And there are a couple of those guys that I left off my list. Whereas Michael Cooper, you saw just a great two-way player and a guy that really mattered for one of the great dynasties of the sport. So at number five, I have dead left Shrenth. And Shrenth, you could argue, I mean, he's sort of on the border of was he really a sixth man? Because in Seattle, he was not a sixth man. But for basically his entire time in Dallas and Indiana, he was. He ended up as a three-time All-Star, but those were all in years where he started in Seattle. So, or actually, one of them was in his last year in Indiana, I believe, where he did start. But I'm going to give him credit here because I think he was brilliant when he was a sixth man, and he did start less than half of his career games. Three and a half seasons as a sixth man in Indiana where he averaged 16.3, 8.4, and three and a half, 52% from the field, 33% from three. He was the sixth man of the year in 90-91 and in 91-92 when he averaged 17.3, 9.6, and 3.9 on 53%, or 53.6% shooting. And he's doing that for playoff teams. I mean, he was great on the boards. He was another guy that had that playmaking ability at a large size could score with ease and especially as he transitioned later into his career really started becoming a bomber from three and a guy that could shoot the lights out from there wasn't in that phase as much when he was an actual sixth man but I think the fact that he was doing it on relevant teams putting up some of the best numbers that six men have ever done I thought that he had to be there for me also as a two-time winner so anything you want to add on deadlift where's he for you uh, Deadlift did not make my list, and it's you're going to understand why here in, in a few selections as to why my list is a little skewed. But yeah. uh, look at, looking at his numbers here on Basketball Reference, 94-95 where he's an all-star, obviously wasn't a six-man that year. 51% from deep. That's insane. Yeah. No, he was an incredible three-point shooter, and he could have been the entire time if they, you know, shot threes in the 80s. And he would be he's a guy that would be even better now because so much of him is what, you know, the NBA is – 
gearing towards a big guy who can handle, who can play make, and who can shoot, who can get his own shot. I mean, what more could you want? I saw an argument the other day on a, some social media site, either Twitter or, or Instagram or something along those lines. And it was about how, you know, you know got players back in the day wouldn't, wouldn't be able to succeed or transition naturally to how the game is played now. I mean, if, if Brooke Lopez can go in from be a completely inept three-point shooter and literally just a rebounder and back-to-basket player and now is bombing threes with consistency for Milwaukee, I think anybody can could have transitioned and became a dominant three-point shooter. Of like course. you're telling me Jordan wouldn't adapt more of a three-point game? No, it's ridiculous. I mean, of course. that's When people say that, that's absurd. It's just because you didn't see something doesn't mean it couldn't happen. It's the context of the game. Teams took eight threes a game back then. Now teams take, you know, 30 sometimes. So I completely agree with you on that front. Yeah, and number four is a guy that you've already mentioned, and it's Vinny Johnson. And I, I think I think Vinny, honestly, Carson, I think we could look through Vinny's career, and if he was playing now, I think Vinny might be a cult hero here on Nerd Sesh. We might have a Vinny Johnson fan club instead of a Terrence Davis fan club. I think you're right. Um, big moments. Game 6, 1988 Eastern Conference Finals, he had 24 points off the bench against Boston. Game 3 in the 1990 NBA Finals, he had 21 points, and then Game five in the 1990 finals, he had the, you know, game-clinching shot for the Pistons. Um, he's a two-time NBA champion, and really why that's going to cement him at number four because he was such a high-profile six-man off the bench and meant so much to those Pistons teams. And he was, a, he was an efficient bucket getter. It wasn't like a, a Jamal Crawford where he's going to slow the game down to a grinding halt. It was efficient for a Detroit squad that needed scoring off the bench, and Vinny played his role extremely well in Detroit and that's why he's so high on my list yeah I have no problem with that selection at all I think Vinny's one of the great six men and one of the signature six men of all time my number four is Lou Williams who we already talked about who beautifully poetically has never started 41 games in a season he's a (laughs) man of the year he has the most career points off the bench he's currently in a six-year stretch and he's averaged at least 15 points per game in all of them if you look at his career with the Clippers, who he joined at 31 years old, it's pretty unbelievable how he has evolved and improved as he's gotten older. 20.6 points per game and 5.4 assists per game on 43-36-87 splits. And he's a two-time six-man of the year there in both of his complete seasons. 17-18 averaged 22.6 and 5.3 off the bench. And he's a guy that has been on six teams. He's produced everywhere. In his lone season in Toronto, he was six-man of the year. Obviously had success with Atlanta for a long time. When he went to the Lakers, he was good. When he went to Houston, he was good. He's just one of those guys that I think you can drop in any situation and he will succeed. He's a guy that I believe can score without the ball. And I think that he did a little bit more of that in Houston as a little more of a spot up shooter, but also is a maestro with the ball and is a guy that can orchestrate an offense, I would say, better than any player on this list, save maybe a certain Argentinian fellow. So that's why I have Lou Will at number four. I just think that maybe he didn't win as much as a guy like Vinny Johnson or Michael Cooper. I just think he's a flat-out better basketball player. So let's move into the top three. I believe that I'm going to have someone that will shock you, and it sounds like you might have someone that will surprise me. So who do you have at three? Yeah, at number three, I have Kevin McHale. And Whoa! McHale, what? Yeah. Oh, oh my. McHale, one and two. Okay, go ahead. Michael is here at three for me because 
I mean, he was an amazing basketball player, and I felt that if if Mikhail wasn't in Boston, he's probably he's probably talked about way more commonly as one of the great. I mean, he is. Don't get me wrong, but he's up there in my opinion with maybe a Charles Barkley. I don't think I'm out of line for saying that either. If he wasn't in Boston, he would have put up some very big numbers. Also, he would have gotten more minutes. Um, a two-time Six Man of the Year, a seven-time All Star. Obviously, he had some seasons where he started, but he was a three-time All Star off the bench. Um, a, a all NBA selection one time. He was just a really good basketball player and such a good defender in the post. Career numbers of 18.7 boards and one and a half assists. Obviously, some of those numbers with um, him starting, but off the bench, 21 points per game in 1990, 18 and a half points in 1991, and eight rebounds in 90 and seven rebounds in 1991. He was just, though those were his all star seasons off the bench. McHale was such a talented basketball player and so conducive to winning for that Boston team. He's a three-time NBA champion. McHale very well could have been at two or one on my list, but uh, there's two guys above him that I felt could be higher. Okay, that is interesting. I'll add more on McHale because I have, I have him even higher. My number three selection, I'm not trying to be provocative or annoying or anything with this, but I have Frank Ramsey who is the original sixth man in a lot of ways, a seven-time champ for the 50s and 60s Celtics, career averages of 13.4 and 5.5, and a, a Hall of Famer for good reason, in my opinion. And I think that he's a guy that really gets overshadowed because he was, I mean, he was on seven of the championship teams, but he doesn't get remembered like a Sam Jones because uh, he probably wasn't quite as good as a Sam Jones. But for those early teams, he was really pivotal. You look at 59 he averaged 23 points per game en route to a title on 50% shooting, which was unheard of for a guard back then. I mean, Bob Cousy shot like 37% for his career. Guards didn't shoot above 40%. He shot 50%. And in 60 and 61, he averaged 17 points per game in both of those playoffs en route to a title. So I think that for those early Celtics teams, he was really important. And he also sort of revolutionized the idea of, we can have one of our five best guys come off the bench. We don't have to put them all out there at once. And so, you know, and then it's the same thing that they did with Havlicek early in his career mm-hmm. when Havlicek was clearly one of their three or four best players early on. And he was coming off the bench and he was, you know, he led them in scoring off the bench, I'm pretty sure. So that's my number three. Let's move into the top two. Who do you have there? I just want to briefly talk about uh, Havlicek for a second. I, I really considered Havlicek for my list as well because you. I read a bunch of articles on on these guys, and specifically Havlicek, though, because Havlicek was really interesting to read about. And, I mean, the way they talked about him, it's almost as if Havlicek invented the six-man role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's um, he's one of the 20 greatest basketball players ever. So, for me, the issue was just with him. It was – eligibility based on my um requirements but if he if I had if he'd qualified for my list he would have been number one for me because he was spectacular okay Carson I'm going uh crazy with my number two all right let's hear it at number two I have Bill Walton okay oh I Logan I can't support that I just can't above Kevin McHale I just can't but okay, talk about Bill. His Wall. eight points a night, and it, his eight points a night in nineteen eighty six were impactful. I just think that I, I, as a pure six man, maybe uh, Mikhail should be on there. But Bill Walton was such a smart basketball player, and you could see it going back and watching 
any film from even his Boston Celtics days, and I know he was a shell of himself from what we saw in Portland and even San Diego. But Bill Walton was such a smart defender and smart basketball player for those Boston Celtics teams. That's why he won the Sixth Man of the Year award in 1986. And yeah, may I maybe I'm a little uh, sicko mode, as the kids say, uh, by putting Walton <laughs> over Kevin McHale. But I felt that Bill Walton's impact on the floor warranted him on my list. And I know he, for Carson's criteria, he even counts. Um, 468 games played, 117 started. So. For well, the criteria, it counts. And well, that's that's because they didn't count games started back in the seventies. Because he was starting you're for all of me. Them. Basketball Reference is killing me. Yeah, Basketball Reference steered you wrong there. Uh, I do have a question here on Basketball Reference. Why would they include his nineteen eighty eight season if he didn't play? Why wouldn't they just say he retired? That's a great question. I don't know. But do you mind if I may I make a comment on this Bill Walton selection? Uh, sure. My final thing is, you know, he did yeah. average seven rebounds in 1986. That, that's my final uh, case. He did, and he was pivotal to one of the five greatest basketball teams ever. You know who was a lot more pivotal? Kevin McHale. But he was starting that <laughs> year, though. <laughs> I just think <laughs> Walton is one of my favorite basketball players ever. I think that he – I mean, late 70s, he's literally going toe-to-toe with Kareem as the best player in basketball. There wins the championship in 77. They're 15-10 in the 77-78 season, and he wins MVP playing 58 games. He was a marvel. As you mentioned, one of the smartest basketball players ever. Beautiful to watch. Such a great passer. Early in his career, incredible defensively. I mean, he could run the floor. It's just by 85-86, which was the only season of his career that he was a sixth man, he won sixth man of the year, and good for him, but he also didn't have feet. I mean, he could barely move. (laughs) And I think when you're talking about versus Kevin McHale, who, speaking of feet, played on a broken foot throughout um, a playoffs and was averaging like 20-plus a game. I love Bill Walton. I don't think that there's any way to put him above Kevin McHale. So my number two is who I'm going to assume is your number one, and I have Manu Ginobili, who is the sixth man for one of the greatest dynasties in basketball history, has come off the bench for 13 of his 16 seasons, career averages of basically 13, 3.3, and 3.7, 1.2 steals per game. 45% 45% from the field, 37% from three. In the 07-08 season, he's sixth man of the year and third-team All-NBA, sixth man on three championship teams, career plus 6.5 on off splits, which just, I mean, shows how much of an impact he had on team success. He was always really their third best guy. Uh, maybe not on the first championship team, you could argue, but pretty much. And yeah, so that 07-08 season, he averages 19.5, 5-4 on 46-40, 86 splits. Uh, on their way to a ring in 07, he averages 17, 5.5, and 3.7 on 38% shooting from three in the playoffs, 17.8 in the finals. You look in the 2013-14 season where he's 36 years old, still averaged 14, 3, and 4 on 39% from three in the playoffs, and 14.43 and 4.4 on 50, 42, 88 splits in the finals. He's a guy that was a genius playmaker. Always better than his raw stats will indicate. Impacted the game in so many ways. Was clutch. Made winning plays. And he was really spectacular. And I think he's a surefire Hall of Famer. Being able to watch Manu is ultimately why I put him at number one. I mean, I got to see his impact on the floor firsthand and what he could do for those first teams. And obviously, I don't know. I feel like for me and you, we had almost a – a magnifying glass on the Spurs too, just because they were so prominent for a while. And 
the fact that they played I, I don't think this is hyperbole. They played majestic basketball. It was mm-hmm. beautiful to watch how they could move the rock. For Manu, though, specifically, his only two seasons starting uh, the majority of his games, 79 of 80 in the 2011 season and 74 of 74 and 05, he was an all-star both years. And yeah. that wasn't even his best – neither of those seasons were his best scoring year as in 2008, as you mentioned. Uh, 19.5 points that season. Manu was one of the craftiest players and I think easily a top three player of – I won't say any championship team because the one with Kawhi at the end there, Kawhi was clearly and far yeah. away, in my opinion, better than Manu. Yeah. But he was there for a while, and he was a reliable bucket, very much in the mold of Vinny Johnson. If you needed him off the bench, he could come off and get you buckets immediately. Just such a smart basketball player and a consummate winner. Yeah, I love Manu. I just don't think – I don't think I could argue he was a better basketball player than Kevin McHale. And the advantage Manu has in this conversation is that he is such a clear career sixth man, whereas McHale – did start for four seasons. He was an all-star every year that he started. But I still think in nine seasons, he came off the bench. A three-time all-star off the bench. That is unprecedented and unrivaled. Two-time sixth man of the year. Two-time all-defense. Averages off the bench for his career of 15.6, 6.7, and 1.7 blocks per game on 54% shooting. In the playoffs for his career off the bench, 16.4 points per game, 6.8 rebounds, 54.5% shooting, 1.6 blocks per game, and two rings. 84 finals, averages 13.4 and 6 off the bench. So his absolute best seasons did come when he was a starter, but still playing all-star level basketball, playing all-defense level basketball off the bench, and is one of the greatest low-post scorers of all time. He literally had 20 moves he could go to and was just an incredible winner. I mean, was a guy that was capable of scoring 50 on his own, as you mentioned. I don't know if he was... I don't know if I could say that he was as good as Barkley, but he would have been probably remembered more in that vein had he been on his own. I'm really surprised he was only one-time All-NBA for his career because, I don't know, I would expect more than that. And it was a pretty loaded position back then, power forward, but still. For a guy like McHale, too, obviously we never got to see him play, you know, while he was in the league, but you you have to go back and watch highlights. But the way people talk about McHale, I mean – there is high praise from McHale in basketball circles. He was essentially unstoppable down low. I mean, I don't know how you could possibly know where he was going. If you watch Kevin McHale post highlights, it's, it's ridiculous. Bill Simmons refers to it as, I believe, like, I don't know, the Chinese food menu or something, because there's like 20 different <laughs> options out of everything. It's totally ridiculous. And for me, he has to be number one. He's part of a dynasty, and he's the second-best player, not on that first championship team, but for the next two championship teams, he was the second-best player, and I think that he was really phenomenal. So let's get into some honorable mentions. My first guy off, I would say, was Del Curry, who is the second-leading all-time bench scorer, held that record for a long time until Lou Williams came around. Career averages of 11.7 on 46-40-84 splits. He was the 93-94 sixth man of the year, so a lower ceiling than some other guys, but probably the highest floor. I had Eddie Johnson, who was the 88-89 sixth man of the year, averaging 21.5 on 50-41-87 splits, 14.4 points per game for his career off the bench, got buckets for the Kings, the Suns, and the Sonics. I just don't feel like he impacted winning that much and was on that many winning teams. And then my last honorable mention is Robert Ory, who seven-time champ, 
so many clutch shots. But as a sixth man, never averaged seven points per game in a season. So am I going to put him above a guy like Ricky Pierce just because he had more big moments? <laughs> Probably not. And really, Ori's best years were with those Rockets teams when mm-hmm. he was starting. So who else did you have as an honorable mention? Havlicek was probably the first guy I really considered, but with how grainy it was and how I didn't know where the line was for Havlicek, I left him off. Um, My my second guy off was Ori as well. Um, And I I seriously did consider putting him above a guy like Jason Terry just because you can name so many of his iconic moments, so many of his big shots. And, I mean, the man's a highlight reel, but when when he has a career average, when you go to basketball reference and it says seven points, I'm probably not going to put him above Jason Terry. Yeah, and literally, as a bench player, never averaged seven points per game in a single season. So I think, obviously, he will be more remembered than some of these guys who were probably actually better players. Uh, Is there anyone else that you wanted to shout out that you considered? Uh, Those were my two. Okay, so this was a lot of fun looking back at the top 10 six men. I think that this is something that, probably doesn't get discussed enough. I feel like there are some people from our generation that, I don't know, might think Lou Williams is the best sixth man of all time. You never know. You never know with the things that people say from our young generation (laughs) where they're really only familiar with what they've seen right in front of them. But there have been a lot of great sixth men. It's not a new thing. Um, There were some weird sixth man of the year winners in like the early 2000s where it's like Corliss Corliss Williamson. Yep, Corliss (laughs) Williamson and the boys. So it got dark for a little bit there, but from the 50s. Le- Leandro Barbosa as well. Yeah, but Barbosa was good. And he was on a really good team. I mean, Corliss was on a good team too, but he just, when was Corliss Williamson ever a good basketball player? That's my question. So that's going to do it for us here today. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. <laughs>